Ever since I was in high school, I knew that I was gay. But back in those days, that was something that you could not even possibly articulate. And of course, back in those days, of course, being homosexual, that was still against the law. And, um, and so there was always that shadow that hung over you that you could be thrown in jail for any kind of a illicit act. But besides that, you would be ostracized. That's John Haney, and this is The Stories That Brought You Here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wokalik, and it's my absolute pleasure to get to sit down with people to hear about the transformative and pivotal stories which helped to bring them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. In the late 60s, John moved from his birthplace of Montreal to Calgary, and it was there he began working for the airline industry. It would be the beginning of a career that spanned over three decades. The job led to many profound experiences for him, which includes meeting his partner of now over 40 years. John will also talk about how living in a small community and participating in volunteer activities and having a slower pace of life is a very good thing. In this episode, John will also speak very candidly about his experiences of growing up gay. He will share some of the many challenges he faced being a homosexual in Canada in the previous decades and describe just how much things have changed for the better. I've known John and his partner, also named John, for a number of years now through interactions on the island, and I am extremely grateful that John decided to do an interview with me and speak as openly and honestly as he did in this interview. There's a lot of great things to be taken away from this upcoming interview, and I hope you enjoy it. If this is your first time here, welcome to you. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. I just want to mention before we get started that there's numerous ways to follow along with this podcast. You can follow along on Spotify, through Podbean, and now also through YouTube if you prefer listening that way. I have links for all those in the show notes listed below. And if you happen to be on this thing called Twitter, I'm also there as well too, at StoriesBrought. Okay, well that's it for the intro. First a little bit of music, and then my interview with John Haney. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, so thanks for asking me. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. It was it was my pleasure to ask you. I'm really happy we're doing this. And to give context to people, like uh, we are in early February, Friday around noon, a somewhat chilly-ish day. And uh, how has your day been so far? Well, my day has been fine, thank you, and thanks for this tea that you made. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had my breakfast, and I. Um, I went down to Driftwood and posted some letters and uh, picked up some mail for the golf course. And I also went to the hardware store and needed uh, an inset screw for our shower door handle. And I was shopping around for one all day, well, not all day yesterday, but over at uh, Sleg's and just couldn't find it. So anyway, I was in the hardware store here and Arnie Oxney was there. And just for kicks, I said, do you have any inset screws? And he said, and he led me right to it and got me exactly what I needed. So anyway, make a long story short, my day so far has been pretty good. It's been a successful day so yeah, far. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, we will start off with the first question that this podcast always has for you. And that, of course, is, John, what brought you to Pender Island? 
What brought me to Pender Island uh, initially was um, we were on a camping trip on our boat, and this was back in 1993. We decided we wanted to spend our holidays on the Gulf Islands, and so we um, we came over on our boat over to Salt Spring, and then to Galliano, and up to Wallace Island, and back down to Pender Island with the intentions of only spending one night here. And one night went into about three nights, because every time we tried to get away, we would run into some people and spend a lot of time talking. And by the time our visit was over, it was too late to leave. And that was the case with um, this one day we were intending on leaving Port Browning to go over to Maine. And we had our boat tied up at the uh, government dock at Port Browning. And the letter carrier came by, and she happened to look down in our boat, and she noticed a book that I was reading at the time. It was a conversation opener with her. Her name happened to be Ellen Willingham, and she was the letter carrier, but she was also the Anglican minister over on Main Island. And anyway, we had a great conversation, and later in the afternoon, we were in our boat, and we were heading over to Maine, and we heard on the um, on the radio, John and John, John and John, uh, this is Ellen, come on over to our boat and visit us, which we did, and we tied up, rafted up beside them, and we met Rob, Ellen's husband, and um, it was a wonderful conversation about life, and um, we, were, we were talking to them about ultimately where we would like to retire to. And we started asking them questions about the community of Pender and what it was like to live here. And by the time we were finished our conversation, we had decided we would like to come back uh, the following month and to investigate looking at real estate, which we did. We already had other contacts on Pender as well. One uh, was um, Jim Verner, who's long since died. Jim Verner went to university with John's father in the 1930s. So we spent a lot of time, little bit of time visiting with Jim. And uh, the other person that we knew was um, a friend of mine from the 70s, Malcolm Pratt. And he lived here on the island too. So anyway, we, uh, we came over in, in September and um, with the intentions of just buying a, a recreational property and keeping our house in Ladner. But we saw the house that that we live in right now, and we fell in love with it, but it required us to sell our house in Ladner to pay for it. So we were down at the ferry landing, um, ready to leave, and I said to John, I said, you know, and we saw we saw the real, real estate agent at that time, and I, I don't know if he was there intentionally to intercept us or not, but in any case, he was right there, and I said to John, I said, I said what the heck, let's make an offer on that house. And uh, so it was a spontaneous thing. And um, the offer was accepted, and so then we had to sell our house. But our attitude at the time as well was John's mother had just died in 92, and my mother was dying. She only had a few more months to live. Those were two main reasons for hanging on to our house, was for these two ladies in our lives. And we came to the realization, well, we've always wanted to live in the country somewhere, we don't really need to live in this house any longer. We can we can have a house on Pender Island and live in an apartment in the city and put up with that inconvenience for 
a few years. And so that's, that's exactly what happened. So we, we sold our house in Ladner and we moved into a, a ratty little apartment in Ladner and we commuted to the airport and we commuted here on weekends and we haven't regretted it at all. It's just been a great, great decision. It's interesting as you're explaining that story, I was thinking about <clears throat> how big of a deal it is in most people's lives purchasing a home. I'm sure there was a lot of conversation going on about, can we do this? How do we do this? What feels comfortable? What feels right? That's what I'm hearing from the story that you're telling me. And then you mentioned that part of the conversation you had was about both your mothers. And the reason that you said you and John were both hanging on to the house was for your mothers. And the reason for that is why? Both John's mother and my mother on at, at different occasions um, would come out and visit us. Uh, and so if we didn't have a house, they would not have been able to do that. But with the reality of John's mother no longer being with us uh, and uh, my mother dying, we figured, well, we don't really need a house here. Okay, there we go. And you mentioned as well, too, that uh, you said that when you both moved into the apartment and you were commuting to the airport. Uh, let's get into that. Why was there a commute to the airport happening? Okay. We, uh, we both worked at the airport. Joan worked for Canada Customs and I worked for Delta Airlines. And so um, that's how come we had to commute. And we, we, would have all, we would have various days off during the week. So that meant that maybe on a Thursday night, I would come over to Pender and go back on a Sunday evening um, because I worked a four days on, three days off type of thing. And then John would only work um, five Monday through to Friday, and he would have weekends off. So we, we had a crossover. We made it work quite well for ourselves. And you mentioned that you're working for Delta Airlines. I know that talking to you in the past, there's a bit of a long, lengthy history as to how you wound up getting there at that point in your life. But uh, yeah, maybe we could dig into that for a little bit. And perhaps you could explain a little bit about uh, how you got to the Vancouver airport working for Delta Airlines. I started working for an airline called Western Airlines, which is way before your time in 1968 in Calgary. And um, I worked until 1978, and I transferred out to Vancouver. And then Delta Airlines acquired Western Airlines. And so uh, I got laid off from my job in 1998 from Delta Airlines when they decided to, uh, to close the base in Vancouver. And so um, I was given an option of either being able to transfer to either Calgary or to Toronto. But because we already had our house here, that was not really an option for me. And I was already, I was 52 and, and I was ready to retire. Uh, so, um, I figured, well, this is an opportunity to change my, my life a little bit. And so, um, I took uh, a severance package and which I was really lucky to have. And, um, I moved here permanently. John was, was real lucky enough to have obtained a spousal transfer to Victoria. So he worked in Victoria, and then further along in time, he was offered the job of being a customs officer at Bedwell Harbor in the summertime. So, I mean, it was just, we couldn't have been luckier. It was wonderful the way it all worked out. Amazing. Yeah. You said that uh, you were age 52 when you retired. What age were you when you began working for that airline For company? the airline, I was um, 
21. 21? Yeah. 21 years old. Yeah. So 31 years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe you could uh, take us back to that time when you were 21 years old and uh, how did you eventually fall into that situation where you wound up working for that company? I, I initially, when I, when I first arrived in Calgary, I got a job where I, I, I was, always wanted to be in the travel industry. And I, I got a job with um, P. Lawson Travel in Calgary. I had arrived in Calgary with, with no opportunities, no news, no, no knowledge of Calgary whatsoever. But um, I started walking the streets looking for a job and I and, uh, walked into uh, Lawson Travel and, and they said, well, we are looking for somebody. And uh, I said, great. And they said, well, we'll let you know. We'll, we'll send you a letter. And uh, I went back to where I was staying. And the following day, this is when postal service was, was really quite quick. I got a letter and they said, well, we've decided we're not looking for anybody. And um, so I figured, well, that, this doesn't make sense. So I walked back into their office and I said, what do you mean? You said yesterday you were hiring and today you're not. I was a little bit cocky, I guess. And um, I said, you tell me what I need so that I can work for you. And at that point, they kind of reconsidered and they said, as a matter of fact, we will hire you. And uh, and so I worked for them for a year. And during the course of that time, I I met over the phone different people who worked who were with the airlines. And um, at that point, Western Airlines was um, they were hiring. And so I applied with Western, and I I got hired right away. And back in those days, it was. Oh, the duties were myriad of handling reservations over the phone, um, dealing with passengers at the airport, weight and balance, weather, loading bags, everything. And anyway, I, I just I thoroughly enjoyed my job. Uh, and that went on for, um, well, I worked for Western in Calgary for 10 years, and then I transferred out to, to Vancouver. Okay, so you had to be a bit of a jack of all trades at that job. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah. And what size planes were they flying in those days? Well, we had seven thirty sevens, and that was the reason why that was the reason why they they decided to hire more staff is because they were changing the airplanes and uh, changing it from Electras and DC sixes to to Boeing seven thirty sevens, and they also went into a, they acquired a, a new reservation system, Accuras, which required or they were expanding their business. Okay. And so when like I'm I'm actually really curious because the airline industry has this really uh glamorous look to it in the yesteryears from what I see of of uh watching television at various points, right? And so what year roughly was it again that you got involved in nineteen sixty eight. Nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the the idea of airline travel in those days, how was that perceived? What can you remember from those times? Was that something that was really glamorous about uh taking a flight? Well back in those days one one really revealing uh, aspect of of air travel back in those days is people actually dressed to travel in in jackets and ties. But today, of course, people wear jeans and uh, it's more like riding a bus. The um, the service on the airlines back in those days was so different from what it is today. Back in those days, we were trained that service to the customer was the most important thing. That was the only thing we could sell. 
any airline could operate from from Calgary to Los Angeles, and you know, so you have a, a schedule, but you have got to compete in, and the only way you can compete is is by providing proper proper service, proper passenger service. For instance, one of the first things that we were trained was if a passenger comes up to you and wants to go from point A to B, and you know that another airline is able to provide that same service but at a lower cost, you were to refer them to the other airline. Wow. It was just integrity was, was the key word. If we took a delay on a flight or if we, fl- if we canceled a flight, unlike today, we automatically rebooked that passenger onto another airline at no cost to them. We were also trained that if a passenger came out into the terminal, um, we were trained to, to recognize that they're in, a, in an environment that they're not necessarily familiar with. And so, consequently, they might be confused. Or the, and, and so, we were trained to help. Uh, it didn't matter what airline they were with or anything. It was just provide the service. Case in point, uh, that one Polish immigrant a number of years ago who was left standing around in Canada Customs confused and nobody seemed to know how to deal with him. And consequently, of course, as you know, they tasered him. His mother was outside waiting for him to arrive, and she had gone to the information counter, and the information counter was not really able to provide her with any information other than the flight was in, but did not send her down to Canadian immigration to see if he, where he was. I mean, he was expecting his mother to come into the baggage claim area, and that's why he was waiting for her, and he was frustrated. Nobody in the Canada Customs area who worked for the airlines at the time um, noticed him or, or was willing to give him any kind of assistance. And I hate to say this because I sound like an old timer, but back in my day, that never would have happened. If a person in her situation or his situation would have gone up to um, an agent, and we know that he had, they would have dropped everything and, and assisted that person. And, and unfortunately, I think that's the that's the case now is, is agents are not really trained to I don't want to sound too pejorative here, but um, it's it's not the same as it once was. Okay. What I'm hearing is that there's a sense of care involved, mm-hmm. like a deep sense of care. Yeah. Curious question is that if that was your training, and so as, as you as a young adult in your 20s was receiving that training, did that trickle down into your personal life as well too? That if you're constantly having to be aware and vigilant about uh, the care of other people, did that wind up transforming you as a person a bit? Yeah, I think it did. Yeah. Yeah, I think it did because I still enjoy helping people. You know, it doesn't matter. I, I might come across as being a busybody, but yeah, I, I do care about people very much. Yeah. Because it's interesting to think, right, like that uh, when we go to school, we're taught to do certain things and, yeah. and uh, you know, our parents teach us certain things. But, but of course, in the job place, we're also taught certain things as well, too. And it, it seems uh, intuitive to me that, that that would wind up having an effect on someone's actions outside of the workplace as well, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it never really leaves you. Well, here's a good training at the workplace then. <laughs> we need more of it. Uh, okay, well, that's really interesting. And so you you worked in Calgary for, for 10 years. And then after that, then you were transferred to Vancouver. Is that correct? Yeah, I requested a transfer. Oh, you requested mm-hmm. a transfer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How come? 
Um, a lot of my friends that I had in Calgary had already transferred out to Vancouver with, with different airlines. And so I felt like my time had come to, to change my environment. Okay. Yeah. So you, you uh, were in Calgary for 10 years and then you moved to Vancouver. And how was that, uh, how was that transition for you? It was good. Yeah, I enjoy um, the people that I worked with. And the people I worked with in Vancouver were incredible. They were from all different countries. There were Japanese, Chinese, Dutch, Scandinavian, Italian, British. It was a whole mixture of, of people, really skilled individuals, really devoted. And so everybody had second or third languages. So it was, it was a very exciting place. And these people were... These people were just great to work with. You know, I've always got the sense, like, because I've taken a lot of WestJet flights and some Air Canada flights and other ones as well, too. But it does seem like that there is a genuine camaraderie that exists amongst coworkers within the airline industry. Would would you agree with that? That there's a good unity between people. There has to be, because if if you're working in a in a situation where let's say you have a canceled flight, or something, you know, you have to work as a team. And yeah, and you develop that camaraderie. And so at the end of the day, at the end of your shift, you say, okay, that's, it's a job well done. We're done. You know, let's get out of here. Let's go for a beer. And so there was, there was lots of time um, hanging out with coworkers after work as well, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, in the old days at the Vancouver airport, for example, our staff cafeteria was, was, um, it was an area where all the airline people could go and visit customs people and stuff. So it was a, a general area where you were able to interact and communicate with, with people from different airlines and, and different offices. Um, and so that it facilitated a lot of things that, let's say I needed a favor from, a, from somebody who worked in customs, you know, let's say clearing a bag or something, you know, that happened because you happen to know that, that person. Uh, so there was a lot of cooperation when they, Developed the new airport, new terminal in Vancouver. Uh, they eliminated the the so-called lunchroom staff cafeteria, and so every airline had their own little lunchroom, and so you never were able to interact with agents or employees from other areas, and it really had a a major effect because you kind of became balkanized, and and so just that that subtle difference really changes how you. Do your job. Totally. Well, it's a a beautiful thing to share food with people. And that's partly what you were doing in those break areas was that you were sharing Mm -hmm. physical space and eating together. And that uh, I find that when you do that with people, that it sort of changes the dynamic of the conversation a little bit. It's, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. there's a warmth to that experience. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the whole thing, the whole thing working, working for the airlines, working at the airport was, was a very good 31 years. Well, one thing I was thinking of is that, so during that time, when you talked about that your training in the late 60s was specifically to be attentive to the customer, did you see that change over the course of the 30 years or was that pretty consistent during those 30 years? No, that was consistent over the 30 years. And um, we were able to make our own decisions too. I mean, we were not, unlike um, employees today, they are more tightly governed and we were able to um, make a decision on our own as to how to satisfy a passenger. We, we just had more freedom 
to reissue their ticket, for instance, and uh, and overlook some of the some of the rules that otherwise people are governed by today. I, I don't think airline agents today have got that kind of freedom at all. They're they're more rigid with what the computer says, and and that's true because you uh, you just don't have that ability to to make those important decisions. Maybe I should be more a little more clear on that because let's let's say um, let's say a, a person is uh, is has to stay overnight and uh, be due to a canceled flight or something. You could just arrange to give them a, a hotel voucher, and uh, you wouldn't have to go for permission from your supervisor or anything like that. You just do it, you know. Or you give them a meal voucher, or you give them seventy five dollars for uh, interim expenses. You know, you wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have to go chasing around for permission to do that. You you just had the right to do that, and your supervisor, the airline, would support you on that. You wouldn't have to worry about losing your job or anything like that. It provided better service too. You, you mentioned the term overlooking the rules. I don't think there's a line used in in airlines very much these days. It's yeah. like I'm going to overlook the rules, and then I guess as well too. Uh, perhaps maybe to uh, wrap up the airline section of this is that uh, if it wasn't for that move out to Vancouver, then you probably would have never met your partner. That's right. I never would have. How did you guys meet? <laughs> uh, we met well because we both worked at the airport. I, I met John. I met John um, in 1981. And um, we socialized as, as as friends for over a year, and then one thing led to another, and uh, John moved in with me in July 1982 in Ladner, and so it's 40 years. Congratulations. Thank you. You said that you, you uh, landed in Calgary earlier in the conversation, and so you're not originally from Calgary. Uh, where are you originally from? John? I'm originally from Montreal. I... Uh, I left, I left Montreal in 1967. Um, that was the year of Expo. And I guess I was at Expo almost every day. For a number of reasons, uh, I decided, well, I don't think things are going to get any better in Montreal other than this past six months that I've spent. Uh, and I figured, well, I think now is a really good time to leave. And I was only 20, and I had already been working for CN Rail uh, for three years prior to that in an office, and I looked at my life and realized I don't want to continue doing this, working in an office environment, going to work every day on the bus and working with these poor people who had been there all their lives, and I I don't want to be one of those people. And of course, an office environment was fine, but I wanted to, I wanted to be in a job where I'd be standing on my feet, I suppose, or be open and I didn't want to be locked in an office. So that's when I figured, well, I would like to go into a different different career and leave Montreal. And um, I, I didn't know anything about Calgary at all. Being 20 years old and living all my life in, in the East, I had no idea. I hardly even knew where Calgary was, but I knew I wanted to go there. So Okay, well, we're we're going to dip into Montreal a little bit here because uh, yeah. I told you my wife and I lived in various places in Canada, and one yeah. of them was Montreal. We lived oh. in briefly, which uh, I've had a great time living in for six months during a a, a crazy snowy winter. But uh, I am really curious as to what you said about going to Expo every day and really enjoying mm-hmm. it and thinking things weren't going to get much better. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people have heard of Expo 67, but 
I haven't actually talked to anybody who went there. What was going on at Expo 67 that was that made you go there every day? The, well, <laughs> I had lots of friends. And so that was a wonderful place to go. And uh, I mean, they had so many pavilions and so many things to do. And and it was just a real trip uh, when you're 19 or 20 years old. And my God, um, what could be better than to to go to all these different country pavilions and restaurants and bars and and um, it was it was fabulous. It was and and of course that was such an exciting time too because it was um, uh, kind of the centenary year, and um, so there was lots of celebrating going on. There was lots of concerts going on. Gordon Lightfoot was there singing his Four Strong Winds, which I think inspired me to to go out to Alberta. And it was just one thing followed another. And and I needed to get away. I needed to get away from from the environment of my family. Back in those days in my background or my culture, being a Irish Catholic culture, I uh, if I, I couldn't move out. I could not possibly move out and move into an apartment I, on my own. That would have been really frowned upon. Uh, the only escape for me was to relocate, to move from that city and uh, go off on my own. It was, it was too stifling. I found it too stifling living in, in that environment. The other factor, too, was uh, the political situa- situation in Quebec as it was developing. As I mentioned, I worked in an office of the Canadian National Railway Office, um, and we had an office of about 60 people. All our business was conducted in English. 50% were French-speaking in the office. And depending on what might appear in the headlines in the newspaper that particular day would dictate how our relationship would would go with the French-speaking employees. For instance, they'd say, today we're speaking French only. We're not speaking English to you. you know? So it kind of created an unpleasant environment. Things have changed a lot. But back in those days, all the business was conducted in English. If we needed to send out letters to a French-speaking employee or pensioner, we would have to write the letter in English and send it up to the translation department into French and send it out. That just reflects how narrow CN Rail was at the time and how much things needed to change and legitimately how frustrated these French-speaking employees were. Um, They were justified in being irritated. That was the the days of Donald Gordon. He was president, you know, and um, the days of the the Anglo-Saxons still ruled in Montreal. So when you said what was going on in the news that particular day uh would wind up causing a dramatic effect at work that, yeah. that would that would create a, a situation so what sort of things were going on in the news that that was creating those circumstances oh just um just situations like like for instance um uh, there was a movement afoot uh that they, they wanted to change the name of the Queen Elizabeth Hotel to um to I think to the Maisonneuve Hotel or some such thing, and uh, different different political issues that were that were arising on the the French English thing. So um, it was just very hard to it was very hard to live with that with that angst. 
just to relate to what you're saying a little bit. So when I lived there briefly and it was 2006, 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. one of those years. And I can remember after being there for a few months, uh, I was living in downtown Montreal that I think I would think before I left the house, okay, there's going to be some sort of a language issue that's going to come up today and just being prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And and it was really weird. It was kind of a weird feeling to have. And at the time, I was taking French lessons and attempting to uh, practice, which I found very difficult because every time I went out, it seemed like an attempt to, to practice that the French speaker would just wind up speaking English to me. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And, and that's true today. And it was true back then too, in the 60s. Yeah. And so like living in that environment with that tension that existed in the workplace and then presumably outside of the workplace as well too, that was a stressful situation to be under on a regular basis for you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was. And of course, you know, it combined that with, um, with my home environment and, uh, and my need to, to change jobs, to change careers, if you can call it that, uh, it all combined to telling me that, um, you need to relocate. You need to go west. Everybody, you know, there were so many people leaving Montreal at that time in 1967. The trains were full of people moving west, mostly to Toronto and, and all the rest to Vancouver. And I did not want to move to Toronto. It was too close to Montreal. And I didn't want to move to Vancouver because everybody else was moving to Vancouver. And I figured, well, my opportunity to get a job is probably going to be a lot better if I go to Calgary. So I was, I was kind of going for the lowest possible denominator, the easiest way. Right. So, so I think that's, that was, that was in the back of my mind, but I, and I was on the train, I, you know, cause I tra- was traveling on a pass and the train was full of people my age, all on one way tickets. One would have been Stuart McLean because he was raised in Montreal. And he left Montreal in 67 too, you know. I think he went to Toronto. But anyway, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful trip. Uh, I'd never been out west before. And uh, uh, I must say that when I got off the train in Calgary, I checked into the York Hotel, which is no longer there. Uh, and right from, right from day one, people treated me so well. It was just incredible. Everybody came together. They made fun of me being a dumb Easterner, but, uh, but they were really generous with me. In fact, on my 21st birthday, the office that I worked in, they took me out for, for dinner on a Friday night. And on you know, Sunday, they, they had a big party for me because I turned 21. And uh, uh, they just could not have been kinder. And uh, the friends I've made in Calgary, are, some of them are still friends. Most of them are all friends, still, if they're still alive. I find people in Calgary very friendly. Yeah. It's been my experience as well, too. Yeah. And it, it seems like even to today, the adventurous spirit of uh, teens and young adults from Quebec lives on. How many of those people have I met through the years who have uh, left home and come out west to explore something else? Yeah. You also mentioned that you, you felt like you needed to um, escape, you said. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into that right now about uh, – your experience um, with uh, with your family and growing up and difficulties you had. Uh, just want mm-hmm. to make sure you're okay talking about this. Oh sure, yeah sure I am. I I um and thanks for raising it. I ever since I was in high school, I 
I knew that I was gay. But back in those days, uh, that was that was something that you could not even possibly articulate. And of course, back in those days, of course, being gay, being homosexual, that was still against the law. And um, and so there was always that shadow that hung over you that you could be thrown in jail for any kind of a illicit act. Uh, but besides that, you would be ostracized. Uh, and I was certainly ostracized in school. And I was certainly um, not ostracized by my family. But um, but my family sure never approved of anybody who was gay, even though they never really knew that I was. <laughs> Although they, they must have been dumb, deaf, and blind not to realize that I was gay. But uh, there were other members in my family, cousins and whatnot, that were gay, and they were the subject of ridicule and gossip and dislike. So I knew full well that I could not ever be comfortable being myself in that environment. And so that was a very good reason for me, for me to leave. Things were a, lot diff were a lot different then than they are now, that's for sure. But, uh, and of course, as well, of course, my family has, has, has long since adjusted and, and, and accepted me. But back in, when I was 20 years old, all my family, especially my mother, all she wanted me to do was get married. And as a matter of fact, um, I had a relationship in, as a pen pal a relationship with this girl. And her family wanted us to get married. And my family wanted us to get married. They, were, they had us marching down the aisle like crazy. And uh, the very day, and this is not, not a very nice thing, but... She was in Ireland, and uh, her father died in suddenly in 1967, the day before I was scheduled to leave and move to Calgary. And the money that I had saved to do that, I had a choice. Cancel my trip of going to Calgary, moving to Calgary, and go to Ireland to be with her, or carry on with my plans. And... I decided to carry on with my plans, and I, I'm so glad I did. And we continued to correspond over a couple of years. But looking back in retrospect, if I had gone back, if I had canceled my trip, if I had canceled my plans to go to Calgary, chances are I would have ended up marrying her. And that would have been a disaster for her and for me. And so, even though it was unkind of me at the time, I don't have, I certainly don't have any regrets. But um, anyway, I guess that's all I, all I can say about that. Fair. Well, you know, because we were, we were talking about this months ago and you, you brought up the idea that it might be helpful and instructive for younger people today to kind of hear the stories about what it was like being homosexual in previous decades. And I think that this is really of great value to know firsthand through, you know, an individual's experience as to what things were like, because uh, it's really easy to forget history. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's certainly easy to, uh, to not know what uh, the history is. But um, from your ex experience, talking about that very difficult decision that you had to make that really could have like shifted your life, you know, one direction or the other, 
what else was going on during that time within the country and the culture for yourself that um, that you were you were faced and challenged by? Well, even even after moving to Calgary, um, it was still a very underground life practice. You still had to be very very careful. You were still you would never share with anybody. You would never trust anybody to that you you wouldn't tell people that you were gay because you'd be so afraid of, of being ostracized. I, I do remember once saying this to one person. He worked at the airport, and I, I said, uh, you know, I said, uh, actually, this happened more than once. I, um, I shared with friends of mine. In fact, friends that I chummed around with in Montreal at Expo. Um, after I had moved to Calgary, I, I wrote them a letter. I said, uh, because one of them was going to move out to Calgary to be with me. And I, I wrote back and I said, um, you can move out here and live with me, that's fine, but you've got to know that I'm gay. And that was the end of the uh, friendship. They, uh, they just cut me off completely. And only recently have we kind of gotten back together and communicating. But uh, that was the attitude of people back in those days. Um, you have to be very careful unless you would get, you'd get hurt by, by people who were intolerant of you, hateful actually. So um, I, I mentioned this to one, one person. I said, I said, you know, I said, uh, you know, I'm gay. You're gay? You're far too nice to be gay. Yeah, so, <laughs> what, what does what that is mean? What's that supposed to mean, you know? <laughs> so um, just because I can't decorate or dance doesn't mean to say I'm not gay, you know? Just <laughs> So feeling a sense of um, having to hide all the time. Yeah. And no. always hiding, yeah. Yeah, well, how do you think that affected you? Because that, that seems like such a, uh, a painful way to live at certain points, I would imagine. At most points, if you constantly feel like that you can't truly express who you are. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I had a very good, a very good friend in Calgary. Uh, he was quite a bit older than me, he and his wife. He he was a customs an old older customs officer, and he and his wife um, befriended me because I was I was very young I was only twenty, and he um, he and his wife always had me over for dinner and and he'd take me on back roads of driving through Alberta and up to Coal Lake and stuff and and um, he was a wonderful guy, and eventually I decided I needed to tell him you know that I was gay just because he's a friend and. Uh, and and his reaction was, um, John, we've always known that about you. Um, so it doesn't matter. But <clears throat> for me, that was that was quite emotional to share that truth. To the point that after um, after I after I said that, I, I went and I threw up my guts. Wow, I'm just trying to put myself in in your shoes a little bit here and try to imagine the lead up and all all the the time in your own head being like should i tell him when do i tell him how do i tell him and then how many situations did you have in your life like that you had to go through that cycling of of all those thoughts yeah well you're um, you're certainly uh, stimulating me to to bring up all these old memories uh, for sure that has been so long ago but i guess it was almost a a constant thing a constant reality that you had to be, you never were able to share yourself 
completely to anybody uh, until, you know, well, relatively recently. And that's why I really appreciate, I really appreciate where we are right now, socially. But I also, also appreciate the fact that there are an awful lot of young kids today who are not lucky enough to be in families that are giving and understanding. They are being raised in very rigid, conservative, sometimes ultra-religious environments where the kids know that there's something wrong with them, but they can't, they can't articulate it or they're afraid to, and that leads to nervous breakdowns and sometimes even attempted suicides. And, and that was a, that's always been a very strong thing with me, is that kids should not be allowed to suffer like that. It's just so totally unnecessary. And that's why I decided to, to become a little more, a little active in the movement here, the pride movement on Pender because um, I think it's important that, that kids are accepted for what they are. And uh, I'm, so, I'm so happy that um, people like um, Adrian Pendergast, the school principal, has had the courage to hang out the rainbow flag for these kids. Yeah. I was just wondering, when you were younger, what do you feel like you could have received from your family better in terms of like a, a way of understanding and acceptance. Uh, but I guess maybe what, what was the situation with your family specifically and what could they have done differently that would have helped you along the way, do you think? Uh, well, my mother never accepted the fact that I was gay until about 1981. Prior to that, she always made it known that she was praying that I would meet a girl. And so she, you know, for the most part, she she was still in Montreal. But um, finally, about 1981, she was visiting me, and I was I was in Ladner. I bought a house in Ladner, and I said, you know, I said I really love this house. I love this garden and everything else. I said, but you know, I would really like, I would really love to share it with somebody. And she later said that at that point she had decided because I was 34, she had suddenly decided that rather than start praying that I would meet a nice girl and get married, she'd just pray that I would meet somebody. But up until that point, she never, she never accepted that I was gay. It was always shown to me that it was a disappointment. I was a disappointment. I would not be able to give her grandchildren or, or any of those things that, that uh, a mother looks forward to having. So, um, so what could they have done differently? Um, well, all of, all of the family could have just, um, if they had been better educated, they could have just accepted, as you would hope families do today, just accept, you know, um, support, rather than start going and praying that your son or your daughter are going are gonna to change, because that's not going to happen. And if it does happen, it's going to make for just a lot of unhappiness for everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, acceptance is such a key word, right? I, yeah. I, I really feel like that um, as time has gone on for me, like I, I feel like um, just in, in like very simple terms, like accepting what is really makes things much easier in life, right? Like yeah. that instead of being in resistance to it, when we accept it, then we can kind of move forward and make the appropriate changes. But um, so the idea of uh, receiving more acceptance um, 
would have been more helpful. And yeah. 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 Uh, well, maybe one last question is that you said that things have changed recently where at what point do you think that you personally felt a sense of total comfort about being who you are as a person walking through the world as a, as a gay man going through the mm -hmm. world? When do you feel like that shift happened in your life? It, it didn't happen until after I, uh, until after I moved to Vancouver. So that would be 1978. Because in working with my co-workers in Calgary, nobody knew I was gay. Or if they did know I was gay, it was, it was a very, it was a well-kept secret. Just that I confided with them that I was gay. But um, it was not until 1978 when I transferred out that I was comfortable at being openly gay. I mean, even after um, Pierre Trudeau, who passed that legislation that the, uh, the government has no room in the bedrooms of the nation back in 68, you know, um, but the stigma still reigned. It may not have been illegal, but it still was a stigma. And then in 78, of course, I think, I forget when the gay games came to Vancouver, but uh, John and I both volunteered for it at the airport. And um, we had received nothing but support from our fellow employees and stuff. You know, it was just wide open. It was wonderful. We have never encountered hateful prejudice from anybody with the exception of one person. We had bought two acres of land up at uh, Seymour Arm at the north, of, north end of Shiswap Lake, which you, you're probably familiar with. And um, we had gone up there camping, I think about 19, 1992, uh, with the idea of uh, clearing some land and ultimately retiring there. And during the course of our camping, we had a tent trailer, during the course of our camping, our neighbor, uh, who lived in the back lot behind us, he came by and he was very drunk. And um, he started asking us questions. And uh, he says, so what is it with you guys? You know, and we said, well, we knew what he was getting at. We said, well, we're gay. We've been together for, uh, I don't know, 10 years at that point. And, uh, and he just went nuts. He just went nuts on us uh, to the point where we thought, holy smoke, this guy was violent. And so we, we went to sleep that night with, with a little hatchet under our bed, figure this guy could come back at us. It was just violent. And uh, and so it kind of destroyed our dream of ever moving up to Seymour Arm. And the following year, we had decided, well, let's investigate the Gulf Islands. And of course, that's what led us to, in 93, coming on a camping trip to the Gulf Islands in the boat. And uh, we we quickly forgot about our property at, in Shuswap. Yeah. I know Shuswap is beautiful, you know, but it was not the place for us. Well, let's let's bring it back around to uh, to Pender Island here. But before we do, just to tie that section off, thank you so much for sharing that. Like, I really appreciate you sharing. Thanks, thanks for your interest. You're welcome. Is there anything else that you want to say? Any, anything else that you want to add before we move on about that subject at all? No, I I, I don't think so. Thank you, Chris. I um, um well, I, I suppose there is uh, because <laughs> we've been on a, on a couple of uh, cruise ships. Um, and we, in different environments, uh, but one particular uh, item is uh, we were up in the um, the lounge on on this one ship, and you know although we don't dance ourselves, but but there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of gay couples dancing, and I said to John, I said you know I said ten twenty years ago I said you would have been you, you could have been thrown overboard for demonstrating that you know, uh, and the stigma attached to check let's say checking into a hotel where if you had two single beds. 
you know, you had to mess up both beds to indicate that you slept in separate beds, you know. But now there's no problem with when you check into a hotel, there's no problem with saying, I'd like a double bed or a queen-size bed, please, you know, not two singles. Um, and there's no stigma attached to, to um, if a person asks me, well, who, who are you married to? Or what's your wife's name or something? And I just, I, I just tell them, you know, honestly, and, and it's well-received. There's no problem whatsoever. And that element is very liberating. Thank you again for sharing. It's, that's nice. Okay, so bringing it back to uh, Pender Island. So, mm-hmm. so there was four years that went by from the time that you and John purchased the house until mm-hmm. that you came to live here full-time. And what year did you uh, come to live on Pender full-time? 98. 98. Yeah. And so uh, when you moved here in 98, uh, well, actually, this is a question I haven't asked somebody in a while. What was the island like in 98 versus what it's like in 2023? How has it changed from what uh, you've noticed? Uh, <laughs> back in 98, I think I think there was still an element of, um, there, there was still a lot of older hippies living here. And, and so it was a little bit um, more, I won't say rugged. Back in those days, I think everybody was just kind of more willing to just put up with things and just having a good time. Or maybe maybe it's because we were we were younger, but uh, there didn't seem to be as many expectations as there seems to be today. Just for instance, I mean, the True Value Store was where the drugstore is now, and it was very small. and uh, And you should not have made decisions as to what you'd like to have for dinner. You just go down to True Value and. Whatever meat had not turned green, it was what you were going to have <laughs> for dinner. You know? so, Seriously, in '98, yeah. it was like this. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, but um, yeah, it, it, I mean, still, it's Pender Island is a wonderful place to live, and it was a wonderful place then to live. It's interesting because people have like a, a dream as to what something is going to be like. Like, when I want to go live in the country, right? Yeah. And that uh, sometimes what you wind up getting is not what you thought you were looking for, yeah. right? So in terms of the experience that you and John were were seeking, what is it that you uh, you found on Pender Island that you were looking for? And what kind of surprised you about the experience about living on Pender? Right. Um, well, first of all, when we lived in the city, we were never as, we were never as social as we are today. Uh, when we moved to here, we, you know, our place is up at Hope Bay. And right away we met uh, the Octolones. And they were welcoming us all get out. Uh, everybody was welcoming. Everybody we met was welcoming. And we developed a great social life, both gay and straight, mostly straight. Uh, I hate that word, actually. But uh, it, was, it was just really surprising for us. And so we found ourselves going out to house parties and uh, picnics and whatnot, things that we were doing, all kinds of things that we never were able to do in the city. Living here on Pender, I think you have a ten- you're going to live longer than living in the city. And we're, we, have abs- we have no regrets. Sometimes we, we go for walks and we'll, we'll, we'll be so grateful that we're able to walk through a forest or something. And we often say, what would have happened had we stayed in the city? And our answer is, we... We always would have wondered what our life would have been had we gone and moved to a more rural setting. We always would have been frustrated. We would have regretted never having moved. And, and so that's, that is one of the factors that makes us so appreciative today that we did make that move. 
because a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people don't move. I mean, people I left in Montreal, they were so afraid of moving. People who live in Calgary were so afraid of moving. So I'm so grateful that we, we, we never had that fear. When you say that you think that uh, living here will wind up making you live longer, what is the reason for that? We slow down. We slow down. People have the time to talk to you, and we have time to talk. There's no rush, rush, rush on the highway, rushing to this shopping shopping center. As a matter of fact, we were in Portland visiting a friend of ours. Um, we were at a restaurant, and we were taking our time ordering our food, and and our friend said, you guys have lived on Pender too long. You're too slow. <laughs> and I guess we are. We are slow. And, and that's, that's fine. I mean, somebody told me I drive like Elmore Fudd. So, <laughs> so. That's, no, that's a beautiful thing. I've, I've never actually heard it quite uh, put like that. That's yeah. really great, right? Yeah. The idea of uh, living longer because you're, you're moving a little slower. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and you know, even when we're in the city, we have this, this affectation of, of greeting people and looking at people in the eye and they kind of look at you suspiciously. But here on Penders, if you don't look at a person and greet them or wave to them, you know, you're, you're probably labeled as being a very unfriendly person. Totally. Totally. I feel like in the city that there's just so many people that after, if I spend any sort of length of time in the city, that that goes away quite quickly because there's just so many people. And I can remember growing up in Vancouver, specifically trying to make eye contact with people at certain points. And and because I was like, I have to do this. (laughs) And, uh, but there's just so many darn people and it, it exhausts you. Uh, before we got started, you mentioned the uh, volunteerism that exists on Pender, and you wanted mm-hmm. to speak to that a little bit. Uh, what were your your uh, thoughts that you wanted to share about that? Well, uh, that, that's one one thing that I, I'm proud of Pender Island being. It was so founded on volunteerism. Now, the clinic w- was built by volunteer money. The community hall was built by volunteer labor, volunteer money. The library was started by Marjorie Bailey as one person, one founding founder of the library, volunteer. The library has been manned for many years now by volunteers. I don't think it is any longer. Uh, the museum was founded by volunteers. The, muse- the building was, was refurbished by volunteers. The materials volunteered by construction companies. The whole aspect all the different uh, commissions and um, uh, societies are all volunteers. The uh, Solstice Theater, volunteers. The Concert Society, of which I'm a member, volunteers. You know, there's a whole aspect of community spirit. Um, and that's, that, that's very, very special. It's very important. I hope it continues. But I know that volunteers are all getting older. People don't seem to be joining things anymore or any longer. The Legion is looking for members. The golf course is looking for members. Um, people are, seem to be drifting away from that aspect. The Lions, and I don't know why that is, but um, that has been a, a wonderful part of life here on Pender. Well, thanks for mentioning all those places. It's interesting as you as you just went through the list there. Myself, I thought, whoa, that's a long list of places that yeah. are run by volunteers, right? And yeah. that it's true. And that's a, it's a pretty wonderful thing about this island. But 
Yeah, so you're concerned about the lack of uh, replenishment and people volunteering for these particular societies. Yes, yeah, I am actually, yeah, yeah, because we're all getting older. Any ideas how to uh, attract people into uh, becoming more involved at all? Well, um, speaking personally, um, I've, you know, because I am involved with the concert society, um, I I make it a point of um, trying to get students to come to the concerts in the hopes that they'll develop an interest to once again participate in the society on the on the board. That would involve, now they had the, I'm rambling here, but they had the Newcomers Society. I don't think it, ever since COVID it's been in operation, but, but that was a, a great facility to inspire newcomers to the island to get involved. I know that one of the um, unspoken sayings is don't volunteer for anything uh, for the first year. Because once you volunteer, you'll never get out of it. But you can't um, you can't live in this society on Pender Island without being involved, because it it gives you so much more than than you can give them. You'll get a lot more out of it. Yeah. Do you remember what the first thing you got involved with uh, volunteering was when you moved to the island? It was the museum society I got involved in, and I would go to I would go to a, a meeting I think once a month over at Peter and Elizabeth Campbell's cabin and the um, the agenda was always almost always the same where are we going to store all this these artifacts and it was always kind of a like a a hamster in a cage you know spinning our wheels trying to get answers and we weren't going anywhere until finally parks canada and the roseland donated that house to the museum society and uh, so it took off from there. Peter and Elizabeth Campbell were so, so instrumental in making that happen. And now um, Simone Marler is doing a fabulous job of maintaining that society and that, that museum. So that was the first thing I got involved with. The second, well, the second thing I guess I got involved with was the uh, Concert Society in 2014. They were looking for a treasurer. So I came on as treasurer, and then things developed, and I became the chair and the treasurer. So, so that's what I'm still involved with right now. And then also, I know that uh, you have you you mentioned the golf course, and that you have a relationship with the golf course as well too. Yeah, but that's a paid job. It's a paid job, yeah. but you've you've spent a long time being affiliated with the. Uh, oh, and I love it. It's, it's since 2001 I've been doing it. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a career. <laughs> and you don't even golf. And I don't golf. <laughs> oh my gosh. You've missed out on free golfing. <laughs> but I, I love what you're saying because it is nice to plant that seed in uh, in people. I was I did a, a short series uh, called Welcome Home. And so I mm-hmm. did uh, shorter interviews with people who are new to the island. And one of the questions I asked them was, uh, how would you imagine yourself contributing to the island? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I explained to them why I asked that question was not to put them on the spot and be like, what are you going to do while you're moving here? But it's it's to open up that idea and the possibility for the listener as well, too, to remember yeah. that, oh, yeah, there are so many different things that we can get involved in in this community. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just, it's just having the seed planted that helps. Right. Yeah. It's all part of participating in the, in the welcome environment here. You know, just get out and get out and participate and enjoy. Yeah. You know. And it's a great way to meet new people. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. 
I feel like uh, a big problem is that uh, we've become so uh, accustomed to spending our nights staring at screens, watching Netflix and yeah. YouTube, and it's become a little bit more difficult to peel ourselves off the couch to go do things. Yeah. But there's so much more value in uh, interacting with other human beings who live in your community. Exactly. And- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doing things together. <laughs> yeah. And so similar to what you were saying about the uh, airport situation, about having different employees from different airlines sharing mm-hmm. a space together instead of eventually being sectioned off. Mm-hmm. If uh, if we kind of come together and share some space, seems like more more wonderful things will come of that. Well, we're social creatures, you know, and, and we do, you know, we, we need each other. We feed off, off, off each other. We stimulate each other. And we feed off each other not like zombies. No. 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 Or automatons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to uh, wind this down in the next five yeah. minutes or so. Is uh, there anything that uh, we didn't touch on during this interview that you thought, oh, okay, I really would like to share this? Is there anything that uh, else you would like to mention before we slowly, slowly wind down? No, I, I don't think so. I thank you for bringing me out. I mean, engaging in conversation with me like this. And, uh, you know, you've allowed me to share a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise share. <laughs> so, so I really appreciate that. You're welcome. I mean, it's like, and you know, part of the reason we know each other is because uh, we see each other out and about. I work down at Poets and I see you and John there and we have a conversation together mm-hmm. or like uh, for a while I was working at Clam Bay and you guys would walk by because you live down yeah. the street and we'd yeah. have conversations there and uh, out in public as well too. And uh, and so I've gotten to know you and John both through having numerous casual conversations. Yeah. yeah and it's been really nice to, to get to know you guys and yeah. Thank you, Chris, for, for what you're doing. You know, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, you're contributing to the history of Pender. You know, and all this is being archived. And I think that's beautiful uh, because there are so many people on this island who, who have contributed, who are wonderful, interesting people, you know. And um, so what you're doing is, is archiving that. And uh, I think that's pretty precious. Secretly, I, I wish it had happened years ago because there were an awful lot of people who were no longer with us. But they were treasures. People like um, Gene Rogers, Marjorie Bailey, um, all countless others. That it would have been great to have had them archived. Yeah, well, we're losing people uh, regularly. It feels like it yeah. feels like the demographic is uh, is changing. That there's there's a lot of people who are advanced age and moving on. And is there anybody you you mentioned two names there that I, I'm actually unfamiliar with? Maybe we could close off with that by giving a little uh, remembrance to those two people you mentioned. But did you say it was Jean Bailey? Uh, Jean Rogers. Excuse me, Jean Rogers. Yeah, Jean Rogers, and she was a uh, she was a real driving force uh, in, again as a volunteer. You would you would call her uh, on the telephone. Your answering machine would respond. Cancer Society, Library Hours, Church Committee. Um, <laughs> Please leave a message. <laughs> she was very British. <laughs> and uh, she finally left Pender and she uh, moved back to England because she knew she was unwell. And as a matter of fact, John and I went and visited her in, in England. And there's another thing. She had a greyhound dog and um, she was going to have to uh, leave the dog here. And John decided he would raise funds to ship that dog over to England. 
And inside of two days, he raised enough money through volunteers to pay for that dog. Uh, I think it was in the vicinity of over $2,000, you know. And then there's Marjorie Bailey, who started the library. She was a very giving, devoted person. And uh, and she died, I think, at the age of 101 uh, over in Saanich. Yeah. What was your fondest memory of her? I worked for a time for her. I did gardening for her. And as I think I mentioned earlier, she was only about four foot six. And she happened to fall. And I, I said, oh, gosh, Marjorie, are you okay? And she says, oh, yes, of course. I don't have far to fall. <laughs> so, so that was one of my earliest memories. And, uh, but she's she's a delightful lady. And she helped found the library. She did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you to her. I'm going there tomorrow to take out a couple of books. And, uh, well, you'll see a picture of her. There, at least there was. The last time I looked, there was a picture of Marjorie Bailey at the library. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. It, it's for me, I feel like I go through life and I just don't really think too much. Like things just kind of uh, magically appear and, uh, and we wind up using them and we don't really have an understanding of how they got there, who yeah. put the work into it. So thank you for mentioning those two names. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, thanks thank for coming in and doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank okay. you. All right, there we go. Thank you again to John for doing that interview. And I am really grateful that John was so open and honest about the experiences he had in his life and shared with us in that interview. Great stuff. If you enjoyed that interview and feel like other people would benefit from hearing that, please feel free to share that on social media. If you'd like to leave a review for this podcast, that would be appreciated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I want to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing theme music for this podcast. And until next time.